certainly harder than that. So we certainly appreciate all the help uh, that this congregation has, has offered for us. Uh, and we, we certainly look forward to working with you uh, as, as we go throughout our work in Australia. Uh, so as was mentioned, I am from Australia. You may have picked up the accent a little bit. Hopefully you can understand me all right. Uh, I don't need to get Josh up here to translate for me. But um, I, I, I basically, uh, over about five years ago, made the decision that I wanted to be a gospel preacher because Australia is an area that needs gospel preachers. Uh, it's a country of um, 23 million people, and there's only 1,800 members of the Church of Christ in that country. So very small numbers. So basically, if we tried to compare that, we, we'd have uh, fewer Christians in Australia than you do in, say, Knox County alone, um, across the entire country of Australia, similar in size to the United States. So it's certainly an area that needs gospel preachers, it needs workers. Um, so, so I made the decision several years ago to, uh, to do that. Now, we decided that uh, in order to do it, we wanted to do it properly. So we came over to the States to, uh, to go through a school of preaching. We selected the Southeast Institute of Biblical Studies uh, to, to best prepare us for the work in Australia. So I just gradu- graduated from that about a week and a half ago. And we're very excited to be getting into the work. And uh, we'll be sure to give, uh, give regular reports uh, to you. We hope to uh, maintain very regular contact with you as we go throughout our work and uh, hopefully give you a fair bit of information about what we're doing Uh, at that congregation. Uh, Specifically where we'll be going is um, the Knowles Road Church of Christ in South Australia. If you're familiar with the geography of Australia, it's uh, the the central south of the country. It's uh, kind of a, uh, I like to call it the Texas of Australia. It's kind of hot, arid, conservative, and just in that central south kind of area. So that's that's where we're going to be working. And um, again, it's it's a difficult field, it's a difficult work, but certainly one that needs gospel preachers. So uh, I, I'm going to go through some class material this evening, but I certainly want to give anyone the opportunity, uh, if you want to talk to me after, if you want to ask me some something about the work, if you have any questions, I certainly want to uh, stick around for a bit while, while we're here in Cookville and get a chance to meet you, get a chance to talk to you and hopefully answer any questions that you had about Australia as a country or specifically about the work that we intend to do. Now, before coming here, I've, I've worked several secular jobs. Uh, one of the jobs that I worked before I came here, I was, in air, I was working at an airport, kind of just doing all the, uh, the standard tasks of like uh, check-in desk, kind of marshalling out on the field, making sure people don't wander off or anything like that, and, and all sorts of tasks like that. And I remember one thing I really enjoyed about the check-in desk is kind of uh, seeing all the people and, and the way people uh, interact with you when they're about to go on a holiday, right? When they're about to go on vacation, people come up to the desk and they're all really excited and, and they start to tell you about their holiday. They start to tell you about where they're going to go. They get into all these uh, details about their itinerary. And you're, uh, from my perspective, I'm working at the airport and I'm kind of standing there uh, thinking, yeah, that's fantastic. Really excited for it for you. Really excited that you're going to go on this holiday here. Uh, do you have your passport? And that's when suddenly I often see this drop on their face. Suddenly uh, they realize, oh, where's my passport? And they start doing this kind of little odd dance where they start patting down their pockets, trying to look. They open up their luggage and they go through and they're trying to find their passport and they're looking everywhere. And when you lose something, when, you've come, when you realize that you've lost something, there is a sense of panic, right? 
it's an awful feeling when you realize that you've lost something. I feel like it's something that all of us could relate to on some level. Whenever we've lost something that's important to us or even just important in a moment, there's, there's a great deal of panic and weight that come, comes with that. But then as someone's going through their luggage or going through their pockets looking for their passport, you, you can usually see when they just come across the pocket that has it and you just see this relief. It's like this great weight's been lifted off their shoulders or they've just suddenly, uh, just so much relief has just come over them. They can breathe again. The color returns to their face and, and they, they, they go, give you their passport and off they go on the vacation that they've planned. Because just as awful and um, difficult as the feeling of losing something, just as powerful as that is the feeling of relief that you get when you find it again. Uh, the feeling of uh, just just absolute weight off your shoulders, this feeling of complete relief. Uh, and I feel like that's something that certainly any of us can relate to. If you've got your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 15. That's the passage that I want to uh, look at this, uh, this evening. Luke chapter 15, where Jesus gives three parables there uh, dealing with this idea of loss, this idea of losing something. He gives three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Now, uh, I just want to look at the first two parables this evening. I want to look at the lost sheep and the lost coin. Uh, all of this is what, what Jesus is dealing with. Is He's using the, um, these illustrations, these parables, to convey this idea of losing something and finding it again. That feeling of losing something and finding it again as, as an illustration. In the context of these parables, if we turn uh, to, to verse 2, well, 1 and 2 of, of that chapter, uh, Luke 15, uh, verse 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So these specific parables that Jesus gives come out of the context of a complaint arising from the scribes and the Pharisees. The of all the criticisms that Jesus received, and Jesus received a lot of criticisms throughout his ministry, right? He received many different criticisms. But of all of them, the most frequent, one of the most frequent criticisms that he received was that he ate with tax collectors and sinners, or that he had dealings in some sense with tax collectors and sinners, that he'd go into their homes and visit with them, or he'd eat with them, or he'd receive them to himself. This was one of the most common uh, criticisms that Jesus receives. And because of the, this complaint, because of this complaint, Jesus launches into these illustrations and into these parables to, to basically answer the question, why does Jesus receive sinners? Why does, why does Jesus uh, do this? Why does Jesus hang out with sinners? And basically what I want to do uh, this evening is I want to look at those two parables. We'll just go through, uh, first of all, we'll go through the text of the lost sheep. Uh, then we'll go through the text of the lost coins, just make a few observations about each of the parables. Uh, and then we're going to go into the, uh, the meaning of the parables, what Jesus is conveying by these parables. And then we'll close uh, with, with a point of application. So let's get into the text. Let's talk about this, this parable of the lost sheep. Let's, uh, let's read from verse 4 to verse 6. Now, uh, before I get into it, is anyone comfortable reading for me, helping out? Got a couple? Yeah, there we go. All right. Um, Brother over here in the blue checkered shirt. Sorry, I don't know any names, so I'm just going point to point to people. If you could read uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 4 to 6 for me. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness, and go after the one that is lost until he 
found him, he laid him on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my peace, which was lost. Thank you for that. Um, so basically what we're going to see with both of these parables, and actually all three parables that Jesus gives, is you're going to see this recurring theme, right? There's, there's that which is lost, there's the one who sought, and those who rejoiced. And these are the, like the three characters that we see in each, of the, um, in each of the parables. You see the one that was lost, the one which sought, and the, uh, those who rejoiced. So specifically in this parable, the, that which is lost is, of course, the sheep. Now, what we need to understand is, of course, sheep are herding creatures, right? Sheep are creatures that want to stick together because sheep have no uh, like natural defense system or anything like that. They're not like all these other animals that have uh, pointy teeth and sharp claws or like a shell or anything like that. They're extremely vulnerable creatures. So what they do is they herd together because uh, to predators, predators aren't going to go for a whole flock. Predators aren't going to go for an entire herd of sheep. What predators are going to do is they're going to try and uh, get some outliers. If a sheep wanders off on, on its own, if a sheep gets out of the fold uh, and is like this lost sheep, that's, that's a very vulnerable animal. That's the kind of animal that a predator is going to go for. Uh, and, and usually what predators do, if they do go after a flock, what they're going to try and do is they're going to try and break up the flock or separate the flock or try and get outliers away from the flock and then go after those. So what sheep have going for them, sheep don't have a lot going for them at all, but what they do have going for them is they herd together. They, uh, they, they, they get in a, a herd, they get in a flock, and, and then uh, they, that's their only defense. That's the only way they're able to defend themselves. And a sheep that wanders from the flock, any sheep that wanders from the flock is both vulnerable as well as very disoriented because another attribute of sheep is they're not very bright. They're not uh, particularly smart creatures at all they're defenseless but they're also not very bright they're not the kind of creature that can just go oh i've wandered off from the flock so i'll just make my way back if they don't have a herd to follow if they don't have a group right around them then they're just going to get lost they're just not going to be able to find their way back on their own they need someone to seek after them and bring them back um, and that's that's um i'll tell you a story about one time i was uh, I was on a bushwalk just out in the back country and I was, I was going through the hills and um, one of our, I, I don't know how we ended up here, but instead of being on the mountain track, we ended up in, in a, a sheep field. I don't know how we ended up there. I'm really bad at directions, but we ended up in a sheep field and there were these sheep kind of herding around and there was this one little lamb that was just only just separated from the flock and it was bleating, it was freaking out, it was just yelling, like doing the loudest thing a sheep could do. He was bleating his heart out. Uh, he, he obviously looked panicked. He didn't know where his mother was. And we're just standing there looking at us like, the flock is right there. You just need to like take a few steps and go over there. But the sheep just, they're not bright creatures. They become disoriented very quick, quickly and they become very vulnerable when they're separated from the flock. So it's something that we actually literally had to pick up the lamb take it to the flock before it was comfortable again, before it recognized it was around its own people, around its own flock. Um, sheep are very disoriented creatures and they're very defenseless creatures. So that's that which is lost. We have this sheep that's out on its own and it's an easy target for predators and it's not able to make its way back on its own. So then we get to our second character, that which sought, which in this case is the shepherd. Now, what do we know about a shepherd? What's a shepherd's job? 
keeps the sheep, tends the sheep, protects, yep, and guides. You know, protects, he guides, he cleans. Uh, this is the role of a shepherd. The, the, the shepherd's role is to protect and to look after the sheep. That's his entire job, his entire uh, purpose. Now, an average Palestinian shepherd, particularly in the first century, this time that Jesus is talking about, an average shepherd would have about 30 sheep. Um, so this guy with 100 sheep, he's, doing, he's pretty well off. He's doing well for himself. He's got three times the average of a Palestinian shepherd. So when we think about that, when we think of what he's got, he's um, one sheep out of 100 is not a huge loss for him. Uh, he's a wealthy guy. He's got plenty of uh, stock in his sheep. Uh, losing one is not a huge loss for him. So the fact that he goes out and he seeks after this sheep shows us that there's, there's more to it than just a, uh, a monetary loss here. He's not concerned about monetary value because a good shepherd, as we read about in John 10, what does a good shepherd do in John 10? He lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, The good shepherd is one who loves the sheep enough to lay down his life for them, uh, to be a sacrifice for them because the shepherd's concern is not with the monetary value of the sheep. The shepherd's concern is not just, this is my livelihood, this is my income. He has a genuine care and concern for the sheep. So that's why this particular shepherd in this particular parable goes out and seeks after the sheep because he cares about them. Um, What we notice there is is also that he, he actively seeks, right? He doesn't wait around. He doesn't sit down and say, okay, um, I've got 99 sheep here. One's clearly missing. Let's wait around and hope he comes back. It, it, it doesn't say that at all. It says he sought the sheep. He went out and actively sought the sheep. Uh, and and he's, he doesn't stop until the sheep is found, the text tells us. He, he's not going to just do a token search, quickly look around the area, and then say, okay, I guess the sheep is lost. Let's move on. He says he's not going to stop until it is found. Um, that, that, that's kind of the, 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 uh, the conclusion there of verse 4. He, um, he, does not, he, he does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. He's going to keep going. doesn't matter how long it takes him, he's going to find this lost sheep. Again, all of this is telling us and showing us that there is a genuine care, a genuine concern for this particular sheep's well-being. So we have that which is lost. We have the... Who, the we have that which is lost, we have he who sought, and then we have those who rejoiced. Uh, in, in verse 6, the, the friends and neighbors. You know, we kind of mentioned before that finding something is, uh, it's a cause of great relief. It's When you find something that was lost, it's relieving, but it's also a cause for great joy, isn't it? It's something that is, is genuinely joyful in us. There's just, you know, something in our heart leaps when we find something that was lost. Uh, it's not just that you regain the, the state you were before you were lost, sorry, before that which was lost was lost. You get to a new state of joy. You actually start rejoicing in the fact that you've found something that you previously would have had anyway. Uh, it's a special kind of feeling. It's a genuine joy. And when something exciting happens, when something joyous happens, you want to share it, right? When something happy happens in your life, you want to share that with those around you. You want to share that with your friends and your neighbors. You know, like the birth of a baby. When when a couple finds out they're pregnant, usually they're they're going to want to tell people about that. They're excited about it and they want to tell people what's going on. Uh, they They want to share that with their friends because they're experiencing great joy 
they want others, those around them, to experience that same kind of joy as well. So they share it. Uh, in this particular parable, the, the shepherd who lost his sheep, he then goes and tells his friends and neighbors, I lost the sheep, but now I've found it. Let's rejoice. Let's have a celebration. Let's celebrate the fact that, that you know, I've, I've celebrate this joy that I'm experiencing. Uh, again, it continues to emphasize the value that this shepherd places on the sheep. He loves this sheep and he cares about this sheep. And, you know, we, we don't necessarily get it in the, in the English, but um, in, in the original language, this whole parable and, and each, uh, each consecutive parable is asked as a single question. And what, basically what he's doing is he's asking it as a single question to basically say, uh, this is the normal expected uh, course of events for someone who lost a sheep. He's ba- basically saying, if you lost a sheep, all of these things would be expected. All of these things would be the necessary consequence or the necessary result of, of this particular event. If a shepherd loses a sheep and then he finds it again, it is expected that he would call his friends and neighbors and rejoice with them. So that's the normal circumstance. That's a normal cultural circumstance. So that's the, um, the three aspects of, of this particular parable. That which is lost, that, those who sought, and those who rejoiced. Are there any other observations just about the, if you've got any thoughts or observations about the text or parable itself? All right, well, let's move on to the, the next parable and just make a few observations of that before we get into the, uh, the explanation and, and, and what these parables are all about. So let's, let's read verse 8 and 9. Josh, do you mind reading for me uh, verse 8 and 9? Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for that. So we have this same kind of... Uh, very, very similar kind of idea. Same concept going on. Uh, but basically what we see is this kind of uh, consecutive escalation through the parables, right? So this first, uh, this first parable that he gives, uh, the shepherd loses one in 100. In the second parable, it's one in 10. And then in the third parable, the parable of the lost son, it's one in two. So we have this kind of escalating urgency going on throughout the parables that there's, um, there's uh, a lot going on, this greater urgency uh, coming through through each of the each of the parables, uh, the coin that's being talked about here is a drachma, so it's about two to three days' wages uh, for 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 an average worker. And, and there are basically two possibilities as to what this is talking about. There's two possibilities. One that this coin that she's lost is um, it's referring to like oh, sorry, these ten coins is like her family savings. Uh, that this is just a sum of money that she's she's put aside, uh, and by losing it. There's, she's, she's basically lost monetary value. She's lost some of her money, uh, and she's concerned about that, right? I mean, you've, you've put aside a significant amount of money, uh, about a month's wage, close to a month's wage, and you lose a tenth of that. You know, that's going to be concerning, right? And you're going to want to seek for it. But there's, um, if, if you go through some commentaries on this, there is another possibility as to what this is talking about. There is an ancient practice in, in this kind of area, probably more Greek than, um, than Palestinian, but... Uh, you'd still kind of maybe get the um, 
the original audience would still understand this particular custom when Jesus tells this parable, but there's a, a, a custom in ancient Greece where women would basically string together 10 drachma, 10 coins, and wear it as a necklace, uh, as, as kind of like a wedding ring, uh, basically just a sign of marriage. Uh, and she would wear that as a, as a particular piece, as something that's uh, denoting something to society. She's telling people by the fact that she wears a 10-coin necklace that she is a married woman. Um, so if that's the case, if that's what Jesus is alluding to here, then this kind of parable doesn't just refer to losing a monetary value. It's not just about losing some money. Uh, this is potentially lo- losing something that's really important to this woman, losing something that's like, if you lost your wedding ring, uh, that's something that's, you want to find that, right? You know, before your wife finds out that you've lost it, you want to, you want to be able to find that sort of thing because it's important to you. You've got an emotional connection to that ring. So that's possibly what this is talking about. The fact that she's lost a coin could have an emotional uh, value to this, emotional value to this woman. So either way, either, either way that this is talking about, the, the coin is a great loss to her. She experiences great loss. So the woman, she's the one who saw it, she then does this active search for it. Again, she's not just saying, I hope it turns up. She actively searches for it. Uh, the fact that she uses a lamp shows us that she's looking intently. Um, you know, Palestinian houses, they don't have natural light flowing in uh, day in, day out. They're usually just enclosed mud bricks with a single door that just comes, that, that, uh, that shines in. So even throughout the day, it's going to be dark in there. It's going to be very dark. So even in the daytime, she's lighting a lamp to make sure that she's getting into every nook and cranny of her home and trying to find where this coin is. And then she, she's also sweeping the house doing it. And it, you know, it's important to understand she's not just getting some tidying done while she's searching. She's uh, again, Palestinian houses, this is a dirt floor. She doesn't have wood flooring. She doesn't have carpet. It's a dirt floor. What she's doing is she's taking a lamp and taking a, 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 a broom or brush and agitating the dirt and then looking for this silver coin. If there's silver in the, in the dirt that's agitated, it's going to glimmer. It's going to reflect the, the lamp. And that's how she's going to be able to find it, by, by agitating the dirt and, and shining her lamp. So she's having an intent search for this coin. She really wants to find it. She's not just doing a token search. She values this coin enough to do this active search and sweep for it and carefully make sure that she doesn't miss the glimmer of the coin. Then there's those who rejoiced. Again, the friends and neighbors, it it reflects exactly the same attitude of the shepherd's friends and neighbors when the the sheep was lost, Um, almost exactly the same as verse 6. Now, whenever we're reading the teaching of Jesus, if we see repetition... We ought to pay attention to that, right? Uh, that's something that Jesus is trying to emphasize if he's, if he's repeating it. So the fact that verse 6 and verse, um, verse 9 is almost identical in its wording as it comes to these friends and neighbors rejoicing, that's, that's emphasized, that's important. Um, so before we get into the uh, explanation and interpretation of these parables, on either of the ones, are there any other observations, any thoughts on the text of the parable? Any questions at all? All right, well, let's, let's get into what the text means. Let's, let's really dive into what this is uh, talking about. So in order to understand this, let's, let's kind of ask the question that the Pharisees did, right? The Pharisees asked the question, why does Jesus receive sinners? Um, what, what would our answer be to that question? What's that, sorry? Yes, that's right, the saved are already saved. 
Any other reason would, uh, Jesus would be receiving sinners? Yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the opportunity to talk to these people. He has an opportunity to talk to these people, so that's what he's receiving and taking that opportunity to talk to them. And and we specifically get that I think in the context of, of this parable. If we if we turn back a moment to um to chapter fourteen. Um we if we chapter fourteen verse twenty five, so this is just before uh the, the Pharisees make this complaint. Verse twenty five of chapter fourteen says, Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them. So verse, th- verse 25, we have large crowds, a lot of people around Jesus. Jesus is absolutely surrounded by people, um, massive, massive crowds. And he turned and said to them, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So large crowd around him, and he gives an intensely hard saying, basically saying that compared to the love that you need to have for me, it, it, it's almost like you need to hate those around you. You need to hate everyone else in comparison how much you need to love Jesus in order to be his disciples. In, in, in the case that it comes down to it, that if your family is going to reject you because you love Christ, you need to turn and, and lean on Christ instead of your family. You need to make the decision to turn to Christ and not to your family if that situation arises. The, Christ, the love you have for Christ needs to be elevated a love above that love that you have for your family. And he spoke this hard saying, very hard saying. And then what we get in verse 35, the end of that discourse, it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear or let him listen, as some translations say. So, we have this hard saying, we have this, these large crowds who are hearing it, and Jesus says, if you're going to listen to this, if you're going to hear this, you're the kind of person I want to talk to. I want to talk to you if you're ready to hear this particular hard saying, if you're going to listen to what I have to say. Then we go straight over to chapter 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. That's the same word, or to hear him. Exactly the same word that's, that's used in, in verse 35. So basically what happens here is you've got a large crowd, plenty of people who want to listen to Jesus, but when Jesus gives a hard saying that you need to follow him above all else, even your family, then suddenly everyone's gone. Suddenly it's only the tax collectors and sinners who are coming to hear him, who are coming to listen to him, because those are the ones who are willing to hear what he has to say. That's what we need to understand about this situation. Jesus receives tax collectors and sinners, yes, because they are in need of salvation, right? But specifically in this particular context, Jesus is receiving sinners because sinners are the ones who are going to hear his message and apply it to their lives. We know the scribes and the Pharisees weren't doing that, right? The scribes and Pharisees, they were interested in what Jesus had to say so long as they agreed with it. They were interested in, in, in what he had to say so long as he wasn't going to um, reject their status or kind of turn against them or anything like that. They were fine with Jesus if... if if all he was doing was just preaching, uh, preaching the Torah or whatever, they, they were qu- quite content with that. But as soon as Jesus made a hard saying, as soon as Jesus said, you need to apply this to your lives and change and, and love me more than you even love your own family, they were out. They, had, they didn't want anything to do with him. So the people who wanted to hear Jesus and apply what Jesus had to say to their lives were the sinners. 
And the purpose of these parables, the purpose of these stories, in both of the stories, that the whole idea is of active seeking that which is lost. Jesus' purpose in receiving sinners, uh, we, we find in, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, uh, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. This is like the, the purpose statement of Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission is to seek and to save that which is lost, not just to save them, not just to do the work on the cross and to be the sacrifice and atonement for their sins, but also to seek them out, to actually find them, see them where they are and, and, and um, go to them. And that's what, what this whole, these, both of these parables are all about, this active seeking that which is lost. Because we need to understand something about the Pharisees and what they taught. The Pharisees taught that, um, this may actually surprise us a little bit, but the Pharisees understood that a sinner could come to repentance. You know, the Pharisees were harsh, but they did understand the fact that a a, a sinner could come to repentance. That that wasn't an outlandish idea. Um, What was new to them What was odd to them and what they disagreed with Jesus on was that a righteous person would go out seeking the sinner in order to bring him to repentance. I've got a a very short quote here. This is from the Babylonian Talmud. So this is one of the um, the, uh, Pharisaic traditions, one of uh, those intertestamental periods when they started building a hedge around the law and all these extra rules that the Pharisees added on top of the law. it, it reads in that particular document, one must not even associate with an ungodly man in order to teach him the law. That's the Babylonian Talmud. That's what the Pharisees believe. You cannot associate with a sinner even to tell them that they're wrong, even to tell them that you need to make a change in your life. To the Pharisees, that was something that they couldn't do. That was something that was opposed to their, uh, their tradition. So what Jesus was doing was totally different to what their tradition said. It was totally outlandish to them. The idea that a righteous person would actively seek a sinner, to their mind, that's just wrong. That's inappropriate. He shouldn't be doing that. Um, it was totally different to what their tradition says. But Jesus shows in this, in, this, in this parable the appropriate response to a restoration of the sinner. Because Jesus was not just receiving sinners, right? He, just, he wasn't just hanging out with them as they passed by, right? He wasn't just talking to them wherever they, they were. He was eating with them. He was receiving them. And that's something quite a bit more. You know, if you invite someone into your home, it's quite a bit more than just, you know, seeing someone on the street and having a casual conversation. Uh, there's, there's a more intimate relationship there. There's, there's more to it. Um, in... in in this culture, in the uh, early Palestinian culture, eating with someone demonstrates a, kind of a, an association or familiarity to them. And I think that still kind of exists. If you invite someone to, into your home, uh, that kind of suggests that you're a bit more familiar with them than, than, than you would be just a stranger on the street. But eating is all, like dining with someone is also a form of celebration. And that's what Jesus brings out in these parables. And he, and he repeats it in verse 6 and verse 10. He talks about this banquet that goes on. He talks about this uh, rejoicing that goes on, this celebration that goes on about finding that which is lost. Um, the Pharisees looked at Jesus as eating with sinners as, a, as an association with sinful lifestyles, but that was not the case. That's not what Jesus was doing. What Jesus was doing is he was celebrating the restoration of sinners. 
He was celebrating the fact that sinners saw that there was something wrong in their lives and they listened to the teachings of Jesus and they said, I want to follow him. I want to listen to him and I want to hear what he has to say and apply it to my life and change and to be more like this man. That's what the sinners were doing. And Jesus wanted to celebrate that because that is the right response. That's the the whole point of these parables is that the right response of of a repentant sinner is rejoicing. Rejoicing is the correct response to someone being uh, restored, by a sinner being restored. You know, this, this is given in these, these parallel explanations in verse 7 and in verse 10. Verse 7 says, I tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the present... Sorry, I've Jump down to verse 10. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's the whole point of these parables, is the right response to a repentant sinner being rejoicing. That's, that's the, the main point. There is real celebration that goes on in heaven over the restoration of, of a sinner. You know, these sections, verse 7 and verse 10, they're not part of the parables. They're kind of an explanation, kind of tacked on to the bottom of the parables. And he's saying that this is a real event that occurs. Angels are genuinely celebrating when a sinner comes to repentance, when a sinner turns from their life of sin and turns to Christ and is immersed in baptism. That is a cause for rejoicing in heaven real rejoicing with these angels who, um, who, who, who rejoice at it. Again, if we, if we look at Pharisaic authors, if we look at what the Pharisees believed on this, uh, again, another quote from the Babylonian Talmud, there is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. That's what the Pharisees believe. They believe that uh, angels rejoice when sinners die. Angels rejoice when sinners go to hell. That's what they believe. That's what the Pharisees believe. But Jesus is turning this around, saying that there, there is far greater joy before God. There is real, genuine joy before God in the presence of his throne, amongst his angels, his messengers, those who are surrounding him and enjoying his presence. There is real celebration that occurs when a sinner is restored. That's totally different, totally different to what, uh, to what the Pharisees believed. And that's the main point of what Jesus is getting across. Are there any thoughts or comments about the interpretation or, or, or explanation of this parable before we get into the application? All right, well, let's, let's see what that means for us today. How do we apply that? Let's, let's see how, um, how I can look at this parable and apply it to my life today. Firstly, if we're lost, we need to be found. If we're in a lost state, then we need to be found. If we're like this sheep or like this coin, then we need to be found. Uh, we're in terrible danger. First Peter chapter, chapter 5 and verse 8 says, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Um, that's the, the idea of a sheep, vulnerable, he's away from the flock, he's in danger. If we're in that state, if we're lost, if we're not in Christ, if we're not in the church, then we're in terrible danger then we're in that vulnerable state that that sheep was. We're in that vulnerable state to the devil who's prowling about, looking to whom he may devour. And as we noted before, who's a predator going to go after? He's going to go after the stray sheep, right? He's not going to go after the flock. A roaring lion, a predator, is going for the sheep that has wandered off, that has started going away from the church or started uh, backsliding or started getting out of the situation of, of regular church attendance. That's who Satan's going to go after. That's the vulnerable sheep. 
that Satan is going to target. There is, only, there is only one place that we can have the security of salvation, and that is in the church, that is in Christ. That is the only place that we can have salvation. So if we're lost, either we've never come to Christ or we've, or we've, uh, or we've, um, we've been in the church and we've wandered away from the flock and we've left the flock, then we need to come back. We need to be in a right relationship with God. We need to be in Christ in order to have that security. So if we're lost, we need to be found. But if we're found... We need to be seeking. If we're found, we need to be seeking. And I don't mean just hoping something comes along. I mean actively seeking. The kind of seeking that we see in this parable, these parables. The kind of seeking that this shepherd did. And the kind of seeking that this woman did. That's what we need to be involved in. Um, you know, it, it wasn't just an attitude of, I hope it turns up. There was active seeking in these parables. Um, can I get a show of hands? Does anyone know the hymn, The Ninety and Nine? couple of us just a few I, I absolutely love that hymn and usually when I ask people if they've heard of it a lot of people say oh we used to sing that one a lot uh, we used to sing that one a lot back in the day but I don't really hear it anymore and I, I think that's probably the case and it, it used to kind of be like a almost a um, almost a battle cry of the church it used to be like almost this anthem that we'd we'd always sing uh, back in the back in the good old days as it were uh, there was just this battle cry of the church that we understood the need um, to search because the 99, the hymn is, is about this, this parable of the lost sheep. The hymn is about regardless of the perils, regardless of how much it costs, re- regardless of what you need to face, you need to go out and seek the lost sheep. Uh, you need to be out there in the field searching for the sheep. Um, I, I think it's... No, I can't remember any of the words now, but it's, you know, the, the idea of... Um, the, the desert, no, I can't, oh, it's gone. Um, there's this vast desert and, you know, it doesn't matter how, how far he has to wander. It doesn't matter how far this shepherd has to go. He is going to find the sheep. The shepherd will find the sheep. That's the attitude of the 99. But I've heard it said, I heard it said by a preacher, that we've replaced the hymn, the 99, where the shepherd crosses deep waters and dark nights with the nursery rhyme, Little Bo Peep. Are we familiar with that one? Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and, do, and, and cannot... Oh, man, I lost that one as well. And doesn't know where to find it. Leave them alone and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. That's kind of the attitude we've adopted. Sure, we're not singing that in the assembly, but the attitude that the church has adopted is more like that of Little Bo Peep than it is the 1909. We're no longer crossing deep waters and, and going into dark nights and crossing the deserts to find the lost sheep. We're leaving them alone and, and they're hoping they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. You know, if all we're doing in evangelism, if all we're doing is in, in, in trying to reach lost souls is having the sign out the front of the building that says, Lost Sheep Welcome, we're not actively seeking. We're not doing what Jesus said to do in this parable. What we need to be doing is, is actively seeking, going out and seeking them. As Christians, we need to be involved in evangelism, which means going out into the Cookville community, being involved in the local community and seeking those who are lost. Because I can tell you this right now, it's not going to be hard to find them. Uh, I don't know anything about Cookville, right? But I can tell you this right now, it's not going to be hard to find a lost soul. Uh, because they're everywhere. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter whether you're in Cookville, Tennessee, Adelaide, South Australia, Hobart, Tasmania, Knoxville, Tennessee, wherever it is, there are going to be lost souls everywhere. We don't need to look hard to find them. But if we go out and we actively seek and we do what this parable says we ought to do of genuine searching, we will find the lost souls. And that's what Christ expects of us. 
We're not just waiting for them to walk through the door. We're not just hoping we have visitors. We're actively seeking the lost. So if we're lost, we need to be found. If we're found, we need to be seeking. And when others are found, we need to be rejoicing. This is the major point of these parables. Again, the repetition shows us that that is what we need to be doing, is rejoicing. Um, a, a sinner comes to repentance, that's cause for us to rejoice. Today, we can, we can fall into temptation of being like the repentance police and seeing, you know, if, if someone starts, uh, if someone comes to Christ and we know their background, we can, we can just, we'll, we'll just wait and see. We'll just have a look and make sure they're bearing the fruits of repentance. And certainly, I understand the biblical concept behind that, but our initial response, Jesus' initial response is rejoicing. We need to be rejoicing first and foremost. When a sinner comes to repentance, we need to say, fantastic, that is good news, that is exciting, that a sinner has made that decision. Let's encourage them to bear the fruits of repentance. Let's, let's help them with bearing the fruit of the repent, repentance. But primarily, we need to be rejoicing in the fact that someone has made the decision to leave behind a life of sin and follow a life with Christ. That's exciting. That's something to, to, to get riled up about it's something we ought to be rejoicing rather than rejoicing that we found that which is lost we might feel like we need to uh, investigate whether or not they're truly repentant or, or, or maybe we feel as though a certain person may ought not be forgiven for what they've done because we know their past and maybe we start to feel that you know grace ought not be extended to them jesus tells his audience to rejoice because that is the attitude that god has to finding the lost God who needs no grace, God who is not in need of atonement, God who has never once done anything wrong in the all eternity that he has existed. He rejoices when those who have sinned against him repent. And that needs to be our, our attitude as well. I thank you for your time and attention this evening.